So today is December 1st, realizing we just have a few weeks to go before the full celebration of our Savior's birth, and, and I can't think of a better way to inaugurate the Advent season than to take communion together. That way we are connecting Christmas with Easter. We're connecting the coming of the Son of God to his death and to his resurrection. So my apologies to those who love proper grammar for ending the sentence that serves as our title with a preposition. But I did it this way for the sake of a proper emphasis. Earlier in Ephesians 2, we learned we needed to be redeemed from our slavery to sin. We learned that we needed to be rescued from the prince of the power of the air. And we needed to be resuscitated from the spiritual dead. In other words, we found out by the grace of God what we were saved from. As the opening section of Ephesians 2 comes to a close, in today's passage, we find out a little bit more about what we were saved for. In addition to this powerful conclusion to Paul's argument, today's passage also contains one of the clearest summaries of the gospel itself found anywhere in the Old Testament or in the New. But in order to grasp what Paul is saying here, I think we need to understand the way that Paul builds his argument. So our passage this morning is Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, but I want to read beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2. So brothers and sisters, hear then the very word of Almighty God. And you were dead in the trespasses in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, Father, please now lead us by your Spirit, to reveal to us not only the reality of what you've done for us, but the miracle of what it all means. To that end, Lord, please lead us by your Spirit now in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verses 8 through 10, which 
our, our emphasis this morning, there are two main points that I want to press into. First, in verses 8 and 9, I want to press into the idea that we were so grace-dependent, as Paul is arguing here, we were so grace-dependent, working for our salvation was actually pointless. Okay? We are so grace-dependent that working for our salvation was pointless. In verse 10, what we see is that we are so grace-dependent, working from our salvation actually becomes our purpose after our salvation. We are so grace-dependent, working from our salvation is our purpose. In other words, verses 8 and 9 basically is the essence of the gospel, and verse 10 summarizes how we now live in light of the gospel. So then let's just begin by looking more closely at verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I'm not sure how God could make the essence of our salvation any more clear than that than he does here in Ephesians 2. I think the emphasis in these first 10 verses of Ephesians 2 is necessary. In other words, Paul is arguing this particular way for a reason. And that is because God's perspective on the human heart is that we will try to take credit for anything good that happens to us. Our natural propensity is to look inside of ourselves for an explanation of the good things that we experience. Amazingly, even our own salvation. Now, if that statement kind of grates at you, then it may be illustrating the very point that I'm making. The tendency to take credit for good things can show up in a variety of ways and in a number of contexts. Just think about a few of them. When you're, when you're serving or when you do something kind for someone else, deep down, do you yearn to be recognized for what you have done? Does it kind of irritate you if, if the person that you have served doesn't make a point to very specifically thank you for the way that you kindly serve them? Or do words of approval from others feel so good? Now, words of approval, of course, do feel good. But do they feel so good that you begin to crave approval from others? Do you want your boss to know every single time you work a few extra hours or if really it was you that carried the load on the big project of the year? Or this can show up in even more subtle ways. Think about what we share about our kids. Art opened the sermon last week talking about how close our union is with our children. Children, 
In light of this truth, it is, of course, encouraging when our kids do something well, and it's not wrong, of course, to want to share that with others. But how often does it satisfy a need in us to have others even indirectly commend us because they've complimented our kids, since in some measure our kids' successes are our successes. In verses 8 and 9, we see that this propensity to take credit, to want to be commended ourselves for the good things that happen in our lives, amazingly extends even to our union with Christ. Vying to take credit for the good things in our lives in and of itself would be foolhardy enough, but the end of verse 9 teaches us that our motivation here, while we may not be conscious of it, is actually more sinister than that. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I think this is the propensity that that Paul is trying to expose. And it's why he builds his argument this way. If it is distasteful to brag about ourselves to others, it is nothing short of demonic to maintain a heart, a prideful heart, that boasts even in our salvation. To boast in a grace-dependent salvation is probably the height of arrogance. Jesus wanted to expose this kind of thinking, and so he once told this story. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. In other words, one a devout religious person and one kind of a rank pagan. Let's put yourself in the shoes of the Pharisees. If you're a regular attender of River Oaks, compared to the world, you are a devout religious person. The devout religious person standing by himself prayed like this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, Jesus says, stood far off. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 18. We desperately want to be saved. We just don't want to need it as much as the guy sitting next to us. Because of this propensity of the human heart. 
I think the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to belabor the point in the way that he structures his argument here in Ephesians 2. After summarizing that we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, as well as slaves to the world, slaves to our flesh, and slaves to the devil, and under the wrath of God, Paul says, picking up in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him in the heavenly places. Question. Why does Paul interrupt his argument here? in the middle of verse 5. Why does he add the phrase, by grace you have been saved? The sentence makes perfect sense without it. The argument flows perfectly without it. And beginning in verse 8, which are our verses, he's going to say the exact same thing again. Why does he interrupt himself to say it again here. Notice, notice that in verse 5, he reminds us what he just said in verse 1, that we were dead in our trespasses. Therefore, God had to make us alive together. Right at this moment, he wants us to understand, by grace, you have been saved. There's no other way to think about it. I think because he knows the need to be spiritually resurrected from the dead shatters any foundation we have for boasting in our salvation. Just think about it. Nobody can say to the guy sitting next to him, yeah, well, I was dead, but I mean, you were really dead. Right? It loses its power on its face. It's not a strong case for bragging rights. By grace, you have been saved. In other words, Paul's not letting us off the hook here. He's pressing us. Do you understand? Do you really understand what I'm saying? How grace-dependent were you? How righteousness-deprived were you? How lacking in true spiritual life were you? Paul says, you were stone-cold dead. But God made you alive. Therefore, all glory belongs to him, and there is no ground for boasting before men and certainly not before God. That's what I mean when I, when I say you were saved by grace, Paul says. When I say we were so grace-dependent, working for our salvation was pointless, what I mean by that is no amount of effort could make our hearts come alive. No amount of effort could bridge the chasm between our righteousness 
and God. No amount of working, no amount of effort directed toward our salvation could in fact make us worthy of God's salvation. There is nothing that we could do to bring us safely home. If your plane crashes in the South Atlantic, a thousand miles from any land whatsoever, it doesn't really matter if you can't swim. It doesn't really matter if you're an above-average swimmer. It doesn't really matter if you were the captain of the U.S. Olympic swim team. Who cares if you swim 900, if you're still 999 miles away from the shore when you die, or if you made it to 982 miles away from the shore when you died. In your circumstances, you are a dead man walking, or in this case, a dead man swimming. Because it doesn't matter how hard you swim. The fact of the matter is, you need to be rescued. It is not possible to save yourself. You need grace. You need to be rescued. In this case, your efforts to save yourself are irrelevant. We were so grace-dependent that working for our salvation was pointless. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, sent his son to earth to work on our behalf, we might say, bearing the wrath destined for us and sharing his righteousness with us through faith. This salvation through faith is the gift of God. Not the result of being able to swim a few feet closer to shore than the next guy. When we realize that despite our best efforts, there was still an ocean of expanse between our righteousness and God's, we realize that our only hope is to be saved. But once we realize this, once we realize that we needed salvation just as much, if not more, than the guy sitting next to us, when you factor in self-righteousness. It becomes the antidote to boasting. It becomes the key to reveling in the grace of God found through our union with Christ. More than 100 years ago, there was the equivalent of a Supreme Court justice who was a believer, and he was in a large church in London. And in a communion service one day, he found himself kneeling at the altar looked to his right and saw a man that he had sent to jail for burglary. They prayed, service ended. He was talking to the pastor afterwards and he said, did you see who I was kneeling next to in the service? And the pastor said, I did. What a miracle of grace that he was there. And he said, no, no, that's not what I'm talking about. He said, when I factor my life, when I look at his life and how desperately he needed saved, it makes sense to me that he would come to Christ. But I grew up with every privilege. 
Every privilege imaginable. What a miracle that I was kneeling there recognizing my need for grace alongside him. What a miracle of the good news of the gospel. When we see ourselves truthfully as men and women who need the grace of God, then all of a sudden Paul's words begin to make sense. I was the chief of sinners. If this is what we've been saved from, what are we saved for? Now, the correct confessional answer is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever which is undoubtedly true. But verse 10, today's passage, reminds us that in large measure, our our glorifying God and our enjoying God happens through the good that we do as a result of being saved, not through our efforts to be saved. Understanding this distinction is the difference between chaos and peace in our hearts. It is the difference between discouragement and joy. Understanding the distinction of this difference is the difference between bondage and slavery. It is the difference, ultimately, if it's played out to its fullest, it is the difference between spiritual life and eternal death. Everything changes when we come to Christ. Our salvation, our union with Jesus, to use the language of Ephesians 2, is so utterly transformative that the Bible in various places describes it as being made new, as an utterly new creation. Now, if you want to see the difference in trajectory from where we were to where we are and where we're heading, just compare the very first few words of chapter 2 and verse 1 with the very last few words of chapter 2 and verse 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. In other words, this defines us. This was our life. And then by God's grace, he rescued us. He made us alive together with Christ. We were saved. By grace, we were saved. We come into union with Jesus. And look at what happens next then at the end of verse 10. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So we went from walking in works of evil to the hope of walking in righteous deeds that God prepared beforehand that we should do. How do we understand this? A lot, a lot of you have been through some kind of a training with, with Seth Hauser, either at the ranch or maybe you've been <clears throat> through some kind of corporate team training or something like that. 
<clears throat> the exercise is designed for your experience. You're the one who walks through that event, whether it's a rock climbing wall or some other activity that was prepared beforehand for you to do. Everything is set. Everything is done with a specific purpose. But Seth is not the one who walks through the exercise. You are. Everything was prepared beforehand so that you would have this experience. In a similar way, God redeems us in Jesus. He creates us in Christ Jesus. He makes us new. And before the foundations of the world, he prepared that there would be good things that we would need to do for the good of others and so that he would be glorified. Think about what a privilege that is. He could have saved us and then just pulled us straight up into heaven. And we would have said, yes, we were totally dependent upon grace. But look at what he does. He changes us. He transforms us. He gives us good things to do to replace the evil things that we used to do. What a hope and nobility and a purpose for the rest of our lives. From walking in spiritual darkness and deadness to walking in eternal light and life. This describes the radical nature of the change that has taken place in us. It's the radical nature of the grace that frees us to work hard at whatever God calls us to do. Richard Koken describes this reality like this. To know I am saved by grace liberates me from the pride of imagining I can save myself and the terror of realizing I can't. And I would add to that. The grace that frees us from pride is the grace that frees us to work for the glory of God and not ourselves. And the grace that frees us from the fear of condemnation is the grace that fuels us to work as hard as we possibly can without the fear of failure and without the agony of attempting to earn our standing before God through our good works. Verse 10 says, we are God's workmanship. The idea is that we are the ones upon which God is working. God is working on us and God is working in us. Because he has first worked for us, we can now freely work for others so that God's glory is displayed in our lives. Just biblically speaking, in the New Testament, one of Paul's favorite analogies was to think about it as a sculptor molding clay. Obviously, we are the clay, and God is the one who is working on us. We are his workmanship. But the work that God does for us and the work that God does in us is what frees us to then be able to work for others, doing good things for them so that God himself would be glorified. And notice there's a, not a whole lot of us in the midst of that. Whereas before, we were yearning to be recognized for everything good that happened. And now, after our conversion, we are working for the good of others to the glory of God himself.
Michael Horton says it this way, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. This week in growth group, let's discuss how verse 10, I mean, really verses 1 through 10, but in particular verse 10, can absolutely revolutionize the way that we think about every single thing that we do. From the most mundane task to the most large-scale project we will ever lay our hands on. And absolutely everything in between. Everything from worship to pursuing holiness, from serving the homeless to ministering in your home, from supporting the church to serving in the church, from preaching to 10,000 to offering a cup of cold water to one. Everything is now an opportunity to do good for others so that God's transformative power would be displayed in our lives for his glory and for his glory alone. In this life, our good works may be ridiculed. Why would you teach your children that? How could you possibly hold to that position in 2019? Why in the world would you give money to that organization? Our good works in this world, in this life, may be ridiculed, but one day, even unbelievers will praise God for them. 1 Peter 2.12 Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers. Isn't that fascinating? that we are doing good as led by God's Spirit for the glory of God and the good of others, and that is described as being evildoers. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak of you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. How's that for a more outsized impact than you could ever imagine your works would have. In the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, look, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and give, it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, how does it end? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's the exact same reasoning as verse 10. The biblical concept of love is not so much a feeling as it is an action, which is why we could take a famous passage like 1 John Four, which describes God's love and, and really insert the word work for love and it, it conveys the idea that I'm talking about perfectly. In this the work of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might work through him. In this is work, not that we worked for God but that he worked for us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our 
sins. It is God's work on our behalf that frees us to be able to work for the good of others and for His glory alone. In other words, we are so grace-dependent that working from our salvation has now become our purpose. This is what we were saved for. So brothers and sisters, let's get to work for the good of others and for the glory of God. Now as we consider the communion table in light of these truths, recall that Jesus said that his bread was to do the will of the Father. He said, the Father is working and I am working. So I want us to consider two things this morning. The bread is representative of Jesus, not just his sacrifice, but his work on our behalf, which makes us righteous before God. So consider that before you take the elements this morning. And secondly, his blood is what washes away our sin, including our propensity to want to take credit for anything good that happens to us, including our own salvation. His blood even washes away our own self-righteousness. So consider those two things as we prepare for communion this morning. Uh, Would the uh, growth group that's assisting in communion come up at this time? Let me pray for us and then... You can come when you're ready. The way that communion will work this morning is that I would ask you to come up through the center aisles to take the elements, return to your seats on the outside aisles. Uh, You need not be a member of River Oaks Community Church in order to participate in this table of grace. You do, however, need to have repented of your sin and have placed your faith in Jesus Christ as the reason that you are righteous before the Father. If you know that it is by grace that you have been saved, and this was not your own doing, but was the gift of God, then you are welcome to come to this table of grace. Let me pray for us and then come when you're ready. Father, would you, would you impress upon us now the thrill of what it means that Jesus worked for us. So his record of work has become our record of work. Thank you that he was willing to bear our record of work onto himself so that he would absorb the wrath that our sins deserved. Lord, would you please now cause our hearts to overflow with joy for the reality of the good news of the gospel itself. Thank you for his work on our behalf and thank you for the blood that he shed to take away our sins. We love you, we praise you, and I pray that your grace would fly over this place right now as a banner declaring that you and you alone are worthy of glory and honor. Lead us by your spirit now, I ask in Jesus' name, amen.